Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner, coming to you from the University of Southern California. And it's my great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Professor Till von Raden, a distinguished scholar of German-Jewish history, historiography, political history, and intellectual history in the 19th and 20th centuries. Till von Raden holds the Canada Research Chair in German and European Studies at the University of Montreal. Before arriving in Montreal, he taught at several places, including the University of Cologne and the University of Chicago, and he's received more fellowships and honors than I have time to name. He earned his PhD at the University of Bielefeld, and his dissertation, Juden und andere Breslauer, die Beziehungen zwischen Juden, Protestanten und Katholiken in einer deutschen Großstadt, um, appeared in English translation as Jews and Other Germans, Civil Society, Religious Diversity, and Urban Politics in Breslau, 1860 to 1925, with the University of Wisconsin Press in 2008. He's edited multiple works, um, and I'm just going to name a couple of them here. Um, Demokratie im Schatten der Gewalt, uh, Democracy in the Shadow of Violence, um, Geschichten des Privaten in Deutschen Nachkrieg, so it's a it's sort of histories of private life in the post-war period in Germany, which was published in Göttingen in 2010, as well as Autorität, Krise, Konstruktion und Konjunktur, Authority, Crisis, Construction and Conjuncture, which came out in 2016. Recent essays include Clumsy Democrats, Demons and Devils in Post-War Germany, which appeared in a volume edited by Paul Nolte, Transatlantic Democracy in the 20th Century, as well as an essay about Siegfried Krakauer and the history of the 19th century. His most recent book, Vielheit, Jüdische Geschichte und die Ambivalenzen des Universalismus, um, and we're going to talk about how to translate that into English uh, in a few minutes, um, so I'll just for now say one could use such words as plurality, multiplicity, diversity, uh, etc., but we'll get back to that in a moment, um, Jewish history and the ambivalences of universalism, uh, which is the subject of today's discussion, appeared in late 2022 with Hamburger Edition. In its five chapters, Hanraden uses historical, historiographic, etymological, and sociological lenses to examine attempts to square the goal of human equality with the claim to diversity. These are problems and issues he's grappled with in different ways for much of his long and illustrious career. In Fielheit, the different essays approach this central problematic of European modernity through the example of Jewish history since the 18th century. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity to speak with you. Um, and Till, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, it's great to great to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let me start by giving you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself, and in particular, if you could tell us how you came to be a historian of modern German Jewish history, as well as the other topics that you've been writing about over the last few decades. In in ways that I probably don't really understand, uh, I have always been intrigued by 
conflict uh, by discord uh, by by strive uh, by disruption and various forms of sub subversion and including self uh, subversion um so i was always sort of baffled by the idea that one could write about cultures or societies as a kind of self-contained unit that was homogenous so my my curiosity was always sparked by questions of heterogeneity of all kind um and over over the course of my studies i realized that what really sort of intrigued me the most was the question of how democratic societies deal with difference uh, modern democracies are based on the elusive promise of universal equality on the one hand and the sort of quotidian encounters of all citizens in which they realize how different they are this gives rise to all kinds of conflicts including moral conflicts but this tension equality on the one hand the promise of equality on the one hand and the recurrent presence of differences of all kinds is something that that has sort of captured my attention and has in, intrigued me so in some ways what i'm interested in is is to explore how citizens uh, that come from different places peculiar places particular places come together and navigate the conflicts and the differences that both separate and and unite them uh, so and one one of the kind of i don't know something that i only realized in retrospect is that um that studying american history in the united states as a very young graduate student um continues to shape my work so i was uh, i was a graduate student at johns hopkins university and among the people that i met through those uh, uh contacts was John Hyam was interested in the, the centrality of, of diversity for the way in which we understand unity in American history. Um, I was in touch and in conversation with Hazia Diner, who, uh, who was working on, on sort of relations and also conflicts between African-Americans and Jews, the Irish, Irish immigrants and Jews. So what I was, I think, intrigued by was was a way of understanding differences that wouldn't isolate each mode of difference from one another, but actually focus on the entangled nature of differences of all kinds. And I think that's something that has continues to shape my way of thinking um, about differences of all kinds. That's very interesting to hear. I, I, of course, knew that you'd studied at Johns Hopkins, but it never occurred to me. But now that you say it, it makes perfect sense that your approach to German and European history was in many ways shaped by or at least sparked by this work on U.S. history in the American context with scholars uh, approaching a variety of American historical topics. Uh, because this, I think, going back a few decades, 
diversity as such was not such a theme in in the European context. Um, and so that kind of seeing how the movement goes um, in that direction is really interesting. And maybe that's a really good segue because I wanted to plunge into the discussion um, of your book, Feelheit. And maybe a good place to start would be the title, um, mm -hmm. which uh, indeed is a difficult term to translate and um, not a term that one encounters so much in spoken German these days either, if I'm not mistaken. So could you tell us a little bit about what that word means and why you chose it to be the title of, of this volume? So the starting point is, is an observation that even in 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 german in the german speaking world diversity has become a sort of ever more important catchword to discuss forms of difference uh, diversity studies diversity management uh, etc um and it it always I mean, it's not just that I was baffled by the fact that people were borrowing a language and a concept from an Anglophone concept, but it was also that I was baffled by the fact that the the concept of diversity and the German concept of Vielfalt were in, 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 in a strange way related to one another. And both in the context of diversity and in the context of Vielfalt, there's always the question of sort of biodiversity. Um, so, so, so diversity is something that is that is sort of almost a, an essentialist, naturalist, natural uh, uh, concept, um, and it belongs to to the animal kingdom, so to speak, or to uh, to to a question of sort of diversity of plants and trees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I've always felt that that's an odd way of thinking about the ways in which humans differ from one another and construct these differences and imagine these differences. So, so there was an uneasiness to begin with. And as I was, as I was finishing the book, and as I was trying to think about the title, and the working title for a long time was actually Fear Fight, um, it dawned on me that when you look at 18th and 19th century encyclopedias and dictionaries, you will probably, you, will, you, will, you won't find many entries on Vielfalt, and those that you find are exactly about the kind of natural habitat uh, biodiversity uh, 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 question. And because they are so close in, in the, in the, as entries in German language encyclopedia, you immediately stumble across and entries on Vielheit. Hmm. And then you start reading up on that, and then you realize, okay, well, this is a, a sort of 18th, 19th century concept to think about differences. And when one looks much closer at the entries in these encyclopedias and one traces down other uh, uses of the term, one begins to realize that there's a kind of tangible concreteness to Vielheit that a messiness to Vielheit that Vielfalt doesn't have. And this is uh, why it's also so interesting to think about possibilities of translation. You mentioned plurality in the introduction, multiplicity in your introduction, but it's also multitudes in, in the hard negri sense. So there's a kind of very complicated relationship of the concept of Vielheit to conversations in democratic theory. 
And the last person to articulate this or to address this relationship is, uh, is the German um, legal scholar, legal theorist, Hermann Heller, who, like so many other important democratic theorists of the 1920s and 1930s, had a Jewish background. And, and his, his idea of democracy is, is a way of trying to think through the tension, but also the possibilities of reconciling the tension between unity on the one hand, by which he means majority decisions, um, but and the reality of what what I mean the, the standard translation for Heller then is plurality. But the original term in, in his in the German in his German works is Vielheit. And it's a concept that he returns to again and again and again. And the the underlying thought is that while democracies need some form of unity, namely decisions based on the majority principle, they must be articulated in ways so that they don't eliminate plurality. Right? The plurality must be preserved. This is, this is the, the last sort of uh, central appearance of the concept of philide, but it appears in Weimar, thought, Weimar democratic theory, and uh, no, no, that's something that intrigued me, and, and I had hoped to kind of remind readers that there is an intellectual tradition of pluralist thinking worth recuperating. Well, one of the things that I so enjoy about the book is the way you you are attentive to the the definitions of words, but also the historical lineage of words. And so that you bring in this concept again and again, or this approach again and again in, 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 in the chapters. And I thought maybe we can, I, I of course want to come back to feel height and multiplicity throughout our discussion, but an, another concept that I associate with your work going back some time now is the, the notion of situational ethnicity which you bring back into into this volume as well. So could you talk talk a little bit about that term and what it means and how that approach is a useful one for looking at German Jewish history and German Catholic history and, and so forth? Yeah, I think that that the um that my interest in in the concepts of situational ethnicity was something that 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 echoes a concern that I already articulated earlier when it came to the concept of diversity. So to, to highlight stability, homogeneity, um, to assume that, that ethnic identities of whatever kind are sort of stable, perennial, etc., always was something that I found odd. Uh, and 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 in that context, I, I stumbled across conversations among anthropologists who had observed that that people they would meet on a Monday and that they that they would identify as let's say in the context of, of American history, Irish American, they would see them again on a Saturday and suddenly they had morphed into Italian Americans. Obviously, that's almost like a caricature of that. But but the the important point here is that that we need to we need to take seriously the fluidity of the ways in which 
we identify and the um, how how we situate ourselves in relation to the society at large. So it's part of it is is a very sort of trivial idea of we 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 occupy different roles in society, but 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 more importantly. The idea of situation or ethnicity highlights the fluidity and that that these things are malleable, can shift, and up uh, they need not shift, but often are shifting. I suppose as well that they are identities are multiple, and they are they're not historical givens. They're not straightforward. I mean, your approach, although I don't recall you making explicit reference to it. Your approach to ethnicity reminds me a bit of the newer historiography of the Habsburg Empire and kind of the way that we no longer identify language and nationality as coterminous, that we understand that identities, again, are constructed, are shifting, are multiple, are fluid, as you say. And I think this is a um, very prov provocative, I mean, it's not new, you've been writing about this for a while, but it you know, opens up sheds quite a bit of new light on 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 this field yeah absolutely i mean i was um i mean when i was studying at hopkins one of the people i was in touch with uh, was Marsha rosenblatt uh, so i was i was very um intrigued by her way of thinking about sort of tripartite uh forms of belonging um and 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 the and and the sort of fluidity of, of these forms of, of belonging. Um, so that was very important. But but I mean, the, the, um, the, the, obviously at the time there was a huge debate, constructivist versus essentialist um, pr slash primordial conception of conceptions of ethnicity. And, and I was always baffled by that. And I wanted to explore the, the, the kind of in-between space between the constructivism and the primordialism, so to speak, because obviously the primordialism in some ways is also constructed, but but the constructive the, the constructedness doesn't sort of fall from the sky. It doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't emerge out of thin air. Um, so so that was something that 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 I. Um, that that I was intrigued by, but but there's another level that um, that when again it becomes it it's a question of do we do we sort of neatly um, pinpoint people and attribute and quote quote unquote identity to them of whatever kind, and one of the key questions that I would ask in this context is what is the relationship between a sense of self basically who am I on the one hand and the and the question of, and questions of belonging right bonds of belonging are not identical to a sense of self uh, who do I uh, who do I feel close to who do I uh, sympathize with who do I feel responsible for? Who do I feel ashamed of? These are bonds of belonging, and those are—it's not the same as as a sense of self. And and the the whole sort of language of identity collapses uh, the question of of a self, and and the question of bonds of belonging, and and to to use 
a language of fluidity and and to emphasize how social situations, specific moments, uh, are, are relevant to how we conceive of ourselves and also how we relate to others was a way of for my seemed like a productive way of moving forward and moving away from these sort of container categories yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i think one of the things i enjoy about the book is the way you talk about associational life you know which is of course an old question in german historiography but um a, but you give it this extra element of um because it's a space where, as you say, identities are, you know, not only are identities formed and made and unmade, but they're kind of entry points into the larger society, kind of subgroupings that people belong in, belong to. And that gives us a sense, as you've been saying, about what it means to belong and how, you know, when when people feel at home and when they, when they don't feel at home. Um, I think w one thing that's intrigued me about the essays here and your work for quite a while is that you uh, talk about the ways in which Jews can be compared to Protestants and Catholics, but also can't be compared to Protestants and Catholics in modern German history. Can you talk a little bit about, about those similarities and differences and you know what makes German Jews a unique community or set of communities uh, and a challenging one historically and historiographically to um, really uh, to fit into existing paradigms? It's obviously a huge question. Um, and let me begin by stating the trivial. Um, uh, Jews were not Christian. Uh, and, and that um, even after secularization, um, the, a kind of a Christian conception of Europe, including Germany, predominated many conversations and many forms of uh, nationalism in, in various European countries to different degrees, obviously. Um, and in, in the German context, there, there is a sort of intriguing, important conversation throughout the late 18th and the 19th century, um, how Christian is Germany? How central is our Christian traditions for, for German nationalism? And if so, what is the place of Jews? What is the place of Jewish traditions? What is the place of Jewish learning, uh, Jewish culture in, in all of these uh, conversations? And then you, you have, you have um, uh, a lot of discord a lot of controversies surrounding these things. And the, the, the remarkable thing then in, in the context of German-speaking Central Europe is how quickly Jewish intellectuals, mostly men, but also women, participate in these conversations and how self-confidently they participate in these conversations. So if we think about Fanny Lewald or Heinrich Heine, they they were sort of engaged in all of these struggles over Jewish emancipation, but they left no... To them, it was obvious that European civilization, German civilization, owed much to Jewish learning, Jewish traditions, etc. And to, to sort of 
collapse it all into a kind of large language of a Christian Germany, Christian Europe, etc., was to miss precisely what what they thought was central to to a kind of European mission, uh, um, European culture, European civilization, and and so the 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 what what makes that story so unique is not the struggles over emancipation. You find them in the UK, in France, etc. Obviously, in East Central Europe, in Eastern Europe, um, but but the 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 um, the uh, the fact that a sort of very long history of struggles over eman- emancipation from the 1780s until the 1870s coincided with with a very self-confident vocal group of Jewish intellectuals who were challenging the idea that Europe, Germany, uh, German culture was Christian. Thank you. That's uh... I, you're right. It was a very broad question, so I appreciate that you were able to address that with um, such analytical sharpness. Um, I think um, one uh, one more concept that you deal with in the book um, extensively is assimilation, and I wanted to see if you could speak about that as well. Um, that's a very loaded concept and loaded category um, for thinking about Jews in American society today or many other groups um, in different places in the world. And, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you supply a kind of historical lineage again too, and a historiographic um, lineage as well. And could you um, tell us a little bit about the category of assimilation and what it, how it's been used in the past and kind of where we are today in, in that discussion? Mm. And that's actually it's 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 I mean, as, as you know, it's the last chapter in the book, but, uh, but in terms of the the my own way or trajectory to writing the book it was the first chapter that i wrote that that be- began to develop the core I- argument of the book and it was it was a chapter that i had no intention of writing um but i was um i was invited by the leo beck institute to contribute to the it's the Leo Beck Institute Festschrift mm-hmm. celebrating 50 years of the Leo Beck Institute. And, and uh, uh, it, we, we weren't free to do what we wanted to do, but we were assigned tasks. And, and I was assigned the task of writing about uh, the, the controversies surrounding the concept of assimilation in, in the larger history of the Leo Beck Institute, which obviously is this central place for writing uh, the, the history of German-speaking you, Jews until today. So I was a bit, a little bit baffled and didn't quite know what to do and didn't want to, didn't want to intervene in very polemical debates about the uses and abuses of assimilation. And, and, and as a kind of, um, what is the English word, cop-out? Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. Cop-out. I, I decided, okay, well, I will just write the conceptual history. I won't take side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 as I as I did that, I realized that um, it it would be possible to distinguish these three distinct understandings of the concept of assimilation: assimilation as treason, one betrays one's Jewish heritage and tradition. 
um, assimilation as fate. There's nothing one can do. Modernity, uh, resistance is futile, mm -hmm. um, and therefore uh, Jews assimilate in 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 modernity. And then the third uh, understanding that assimilation, in fact, is a form of creativity. One appropriates um, a culture that is not fully one's own, but but blends it with one's own traditions and inflects it in very specific ways and thereby actually creates a new but viable form of Jewishness. Uh, and again, it, I was very... It was it was intriguing for me to see how central the Leo Beck Institute and the social cultural circles surrounding the Leo Beck Institute were for these kinds of uh, uh, conversations. And so I didn't, as I said, I I, it's, I, I didn't feel uh, I, I, that I should be taking sides in these polemics. But one way to sort of step out of the polemics or step aside from the polemics was to focus on the conceptual history and. And what I realized as I was writing the piece and as I was distinguishing these three modes of conceptualizing assimilation is that each mode offered a certain understanding, not just of Jewishness and Jewish traditions and authenticity, but also a specific understanding of the rest of the world, of the universal uh, and and potentially of creativity uh and so that 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 through sort of thinking about the conceptual history of assimilation it it, it dawned on me that there's actually a larger story about the relationship between universal principles including democratic equality and democratic freedom um and the ways in which people assert a right to be different and vigorously assert a right to be different. And I mean, I think what you did is really quite brilliant that you historicized the, the Leo Beck Institute itself, right? And you um, kind of positioned it in this larger trajectory between these three, what, what you're identifying as three different discourses about assimilation. And I don't know if that's what they expected from you, but it it turned out quite well. And um I think this kind of Begriffsgeschichte that you provided, uh, this history of the concept, is 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 really quite remarkable. Is that um, just to talk for a moment about the mechanics of the book? Is were you already writing this book, and then that kind of became? I, I guess I'm asking, how did this book come about, and why did you choose to write it as kind of five semi-freestanding chapters rather than more of a monographic study? Mm. I mean, all I can say as as a point of departure is I don't fully understand how I came to write a book. <laughs> um, uh, but um, the when when I started thinking about it, I was still working in the German system, and as you know, when you work in the German system, you're not only expected to write. A second monograph called the Habilitation, but the assumption is that the Habilitation is something completely different uh, than than the dissertation. Right? So, uh, so I was I was being asked to continue to contribute essays, articles, book chapters that were on German Jewish history or Jewish history generally, 
while I was actually working in terms of archival substance uh, material on something completely different. Um, and um, so, so, so I didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, but then at some point, um, I, I realized that there was a, an overall argument that, that may, may or may not be of interest, but it's an overall argument, namely that uh, all the obsession about are we opting for communitarianism, are we opting for liberalism, are we opting for the Enlightenment and universalism, or are we opting for post postmodernism and quote unquote particularism? Are we uh, are we are we members of a minority? Are we members of a majority? Um, are we um, are we quote unquote anywheres or are we somewheres? And all of these oppositions that shape the way we think about differences both intellectually, scholarly, but also in public controversies, always invoke the idea that we need to decide whether we, we can, we need to say exactly whether we are one or the other, right? This is where, where the, the, the concept of assimilation is so useful to understand the force of, of these binary oppositions. Are we opting for authenticity? Or are we are we opting for something who we really are, or are we are we betraying our authentic traditions, right? And and as I was thinking about these things, it dawned on me that maybe that's not the most useful way of thinking about these issues, um, and instead to to think about the sort of mutual entanglement of all of these categories and the ways in which they are mutually constitutive and that it's precisely the, the, this kind of mutual constitutiveness that allows for forms of cultural creativity. And to come back to the question of the book itself, this um, it seemed best to not to try to impose too much of a structure on the whole project and to kind of let the different chapters speak for themselves. I'm just curious. That's, a, that's again, a very big question, but I think it goes to how to, 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 um, um, to, to the way I think about his, the possibilities of historical writing. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and I've grown increasingly skeptical about the possibility of a kind of synthetic encyclopedic history. So I think that one way to address these concerns is to embrace a kind of idea that, that you work with close-ups, that each chapter is a close-up of, of a specific question, a specific problem. And in this case, because conceptual intellectual history is central to the book. Um, it is focused, each, each of the chapters focuses on either a concept or a family of concepts or a conceptual couple. And each of the chapters then is, is conceived of as a close-up. Right? Mm -hmm. The claim or hope is obviously that these close-ups illumine mutually illuminate one another but that's not for me to decide um 
but but the um, but but I at least hope that this idea that um, there's a kind of unity in differences, right? I mean the 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 um, uh, the, the German term is gegenstrebige Fügung, which is very loaded, um, uh, and the idea that all of these binary oppositions with which we make sense of cultures, societies, etc., are best conceived of as forms of mutual entanglement rather than as binary opposites um, that are mutually exclusive. That's something that I hope comes out of these series of, of, of close-ups. So in that sense, the book was not conceived of as a monograph, and in that sense, yes, as you point out, one can read each of the chapters as, as a standalone piece if one is interested in, let's say, assimilation or nationalism or the question of minorities. Um, but, um, but I would hope that, that, it, 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 that, that reading the chapters together offers some form of added value about the overall argument. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the the form really amplifies the arguments in, 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 in a way by kind of, I think, imposing one narrative on the entire project would have diluted some of the complexity and the kind of the, the different the ways the different currents are, as you say, entangled and mutually inflected and so forth. Um, so I say this, the question came from my appreciation and my of course, we always ask others questions that we're asking ourselves, you know, as, as I'm conceptualizing my own volume and kind of wondering if I'm, you know, what where the coherence is and whether kind of how, how things fit together. Um, but I wanted to, I, I think um, your work has a great deal of bearing on kind of larger questions about democracy and difference, as you say, about kind of equality of rights and space for different particularist claims and we're living in a in a moment where i think you know democracy is being questioned um really all over the world at, at the same time and where kind of difference is you know one, once again very much in the spotlight in all, in all kinds of ways in all kinds of conversations both academic and scholarly in the broader public, um, and I think cynically in in, in political discussions. Mm -hmm. So this question is also broad, like some of the other ones I've been asking, but I think it would be, I wouldn't be pleased if we didn't talk about the present uh -huh. and, and some of the implications of your historical work for the the, the times we're living in. So I, I wonder if you could just speak to that um, however you'd like to, in whatever way you're comfortable. Mm. Let me just maybe highlight two things first, because I think they're 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 in the background and they are relevant for the question and the very important question you just raised. Now, the first thing is that um, a lot of the conversations, transatlantic conversations, are based on the facts or based on the premise that there's an old world, namely Europe, that is a world of homogeneity. And there's a new world, and that is North America, and that is a world of 
plurality and diversity. And I don't think that's particularly useful. And if one turns to conceptual history and intellectual history, one begins to realize that actually some of the key themes of contemporary conversations about multiculturalism and forms of pluralism more generally are actually deeply shaped and informed by Central European Jewish, German Jewish conversations about equality and difference, beginning with people like Moses Mendelssohn. Right. So I think there's a there's a kind of there's a kind of um, a history, intellectual and conceptual history of a mutual entanglement of the ways in which concepts are used that is central. And and to separate a history of difference in the European context from a history of difference in the North American context strikes me as less than fruitful. And my goal with, with this book, but also with a lot of other work that I've tried to do is is to bridge that gap and, and to focus on, on the how fruitful it would be to bring these two intellectual conversations in, into, I mean, and to encourage more of these sort of transatlantic conversations and not just today, but beginning in the 18th century. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, in, and this is particularly strong, I think, in the German context, but I think it's you can find this in, in the European context as well. And in some cases, you've also find it in the American context, Marginality, the, the question of difference is always identified as a question of marginality, right? Differences emerge at the margins of society. And that's, I think, exactly the wrong the starting point for any of these conversations. And here, my sort of the, the most inspiring uh, point of departure for me was the American philosopher George Katepp, who said that diversity is the inevitable effect of individual freedom. The moment we embrace the idea of freedom, embrace the idea of liberty and universal freedom and universal liberty, the most important result is that we all have a right to be different. We have a right to be different without being afraid of being different. And that obviously creates a world of differences that are ubiquitous, and then how can we navigate this world? So that's th those are the two, I think, important premises. And if 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 I would, but it's obviously it's beyond this book. But I think the the uh, uh, is something that 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 I'm very both intrigued by, also concerned about, is that um, this sort of never-ending conversation about differences, all the strife, all the discord, all the conflicts, all the disagreement, all the subversion can be productive and creative if the social and cultural preconditions that are necessary for this kind of democratic creativity are in place. And I think what we, what, what, what we have seen in, in both in North America and in Europe over the past 50, 60 years is, is the erosion, if not dismantling, of a lot of the institutions, places that, that allow for this kind of democratic creativity, that allow for the fact that strive, discord, conflict are actually productive as opposed to destructive. So, so what we are seeing now is that if we dismantle what I call the democratic commons, 
And if we neglect the social and cultural preconditions for democracy, strife, discord, conflict actually be, are becoming more destructive than productive. And I think that's that's the key challenge if we want to if we want to strengthen sort of the the a democratic form of pluralism. I think you put that really beautifully, and I find that both inspiring and and a bit frightening. Uh, seen in this context, but uh, that I think really effectively translates the some of the material in the book to the the world that we're living in, the context today. Um, so I think I'm I'm cognizant of the time. I don't want to take too much more of your time. So I think um, we can leave the discussion of feel height there, and I, I want to just give you an opportunity to talk about some new any new writing projects or research projects that you're working on today, and um, what what uh, readers of your work can look forward to um, coming out in the in the coming months and years. I, I actually I I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm I I I haven't quite made up my mind what I want to focus on, but um, um, one of the big uh, uh, questions that I'm struggling with is how we can how we can think about the history of democracy, not as a history of of institutions of parties, parliaments, elections, etc., uh, but as a way of life and and as a culture and as an ethos um, and and again I'm rediscovering a lot of the democratic theory from the late 19th early 20th century with a lot of sort of Jewishness thrown in uh, because as I said earlier Hermann Heller uh, uh, Hans Kiesen um, Siegfried Krakauer um, uh, all of these sort of Central European social cultural theorists whose work I think is fundamental to understanding uh, democracy uh, come out of this sort of Central European Jewish intellectual tradition. Um, and um, so my 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 sort of I'm I'm trying to track down these little stories from the 17th 18th century to the present that allow us to better understand why democracy as a form of government also needs specific ways of life, specific forms of uh, sociability, specific forms of civility, specific forms of recognizing one another, uh, mutual forms of recognition in everyday life. But not as an encyclopedic enterprise, but again as a series of shortcuts and and so i'm 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 trying to um i'm trying to track down these little stories um uh, and then then once i have them that, that then then the sort of the real work begins where one actually has to do the rag picking and 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 uh, the truffle hunting <laughs> and to to find uh to find the kind of the the richness of historical reality that we need not as a kind of lesson for today but as something that helps us cultivate a certain form of um what is it historische urteilskraft it's it's the power what is kant uh, the, mm -hmm. um but the, the idea is that historical 
There are, history doesn't teach us anything. There are no lessons in history whatsoever, but it helps us navigate the moral dilemmas and paradoxes of our contemporary moment. Right? That's that's the sort of short short version of um, of why I think uh, th this kind of attentiveness to these stories of 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 a, of a democratic way of life in the past. Uh, uh, central. Well, that's uh, really, I think, I couldn't ask for a better note to end our conversation on. And th this is work that I think will have, um, it, it won't give us easy answers for solving the problems that we're confronting, as you say, but it will inform our judgment and give us uh, perhaps paths to navigate some of the um, more philosophical and political um, theoretical dimensions of the crises that are at hand. Um, so I, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I've so enjoyed being able to um, grapple with with this book and um, really kind of think through the concepts that you've elucidated here. So it, it's it's been such a pleasure, Till. Yeah, thank you for having me. But before we end on such a serious note, can I just say one thing about this, the idea of close-ups? The idea of close-ups is not just a way of sort of addressing serious questions of a contemporary moment. But is actually, I think, fun, potentially not just for me writing the close-ups, but fun for the reader because it's a very different form of historiography than this kind of big picture encyclopedic, big words form of history. Anyway, glad, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you injected that. Let's let's end the conversation on a more positive note and remember that the, the pleasure that one takes in carrying out the research and in reading the work of others, um, which is, of course, a big part of what it is that we do. Um, so thank you again. Thank you.